Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Hui Huin of Alabama Woodworker, and I'm joined by my friends Sean Walker of Simple Co. Good evening, fellas. Oh, good evening, Sean. And Guy Dunlap of Guy's Woodshop. Hey. Hey. This podcast is intended to answer your questions, the woodworking community, and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also have a Patreon campaign, and we'd like to thank our newest patron, Tom Fogora. If you'd like to show your support, we're simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Please go to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife if you'd like to show your support. And with that, let's go ahead and get to our first question. Guy, you've got it. Oh, I got the first question? Oh, yeah. This question is from our friend Brent Jarvis, who writes in a lot and is a friend of the show. And he asks, and he states... You are all an inspiration to me and have always given honest, legitimate answers to thousands of questions through the years for so many folks. That's kind of nice. I'd like to know who was an inspiration to you as you were growing as a craftsman, especially guys since he came up in the trade before the internet and social media. Secondary question, if you had a chance to meet or learn from one craftsman, who would that be? Brent Jarvis. So I'll go first. As far as an inspiration, when I was, you know, it's probably later in, in, in my 30s, early 30s, when Norm came out on TV, that was a big factor in a lot of things I did. Before I was just, you know, reading a lot of books, magazines, stuff like that. And I was kind of all over the place. I don't know if I really had a style. I don't know if I had a style now. But um, the way Norm did things, what was very down to earth and easy, there was no, there was nothing complicated about what he did most of the time. And I really found that very refreshing. And he was, he's a, I, 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 I've never met him, but I believe that what you see is what you get with Norm. He's very personable. If you've ever watched, you guys ever watch any of the old Norm Abrams show? Well, I've seen like all of them. Uh, maybe okay. one, two. Okay. Seriously? Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, as far as if I had the chance to meet or learn from one craftsman, who would that be? And that is a Really good question, and it's a tough answer. Yeah. The one guy that I can think of that I'd really, really like to learn from because I've his work is just so phenomenal and outside-the-box thinking as far as design and what he makes is Craig Thibodeau. No way. That was going to be mine. I was about to say Craig Thibodeau. I was going to say Craig Thibodeau. Dang. Craig Craig Thibodeau is (laughs) an expert with veneers, number one, which I really appreciate. Number two, he builds these puzzle boxes and puzzle furniture for people. And I, I know they're tens of thousands of dollars. He builds like maybe three or four of them a year. And, uh, but anyways, the, the ingenuity and the engineering and the craftsmanship of some of the stuff he makes is just, it's off the charts crazy. So, but he doesn't take students at all. So it's a pipe dream. Mm, yeah. But he, he mm. would be the guy I'd like to spend a, a month in his shop with him. All Thanks right. So now that I've blown it for you guys, you guys got to come up with the plan B. Uh-oh. Hmm. So I'm going to kick it over to uh, Sean. Wow. Well, um, you know, I will say here, here's how I got started in woodworking. I bought a home, wanted some furniture, said, hey, I can buy whatever tool and build that for less. Or just, you know, I was interested in learning how to build it on my own. So when I was uh, starting out in 2012, 13, around that time, 14, um, I started by learning, uh, or started learning by watching, obviously, Spagnolo, the Wood Whisperer, and then learned 
quite a bit from watching guys in depth build series back in the day. Um, I would say that's how I learned a majority of, of what I know now uh, is by watching the, uh, the, those two guys there. And obviously, you know, not, huh. cool. yeah, that is uh, that's, that's how I started. But as far as if I had a chance to meet or learn from one craftsman, I was going to say the same person, Craig Thibodeau, but have, you know, I'm going to pick somebody else and probably say Krenov if I could, you know, obviously travel back in time. That would have been, that would have been a pretty awesome that, you know, I can only imagine that would have been a pretty awesome experience um, for, you know, mentoring and learning from, from, you know, Krenov would have been pretty cool. So that, that's probably who I would say um, Mm -hmm. if it wasn't for Craig Thibodeau. Uh, there's so many people. Krenov was a very difficult person. <laughs> well, I'm not easy myself. So, <laughs> but no, it, this is this is tough. There are so many, there you know, so many, so many talented really people great. that I'm. This is no diss to the people that are amazing at, at their craft, but you know that's that's who comes to mind. I mean, you know, Daryl Peart, uh, he puts yeah. videos out on YouTube. He's really talented, great eye for design. Yeah. He has a really active YouTube channel where he's does multi-part series. Uh, he would be mm-hmm. amazing to take a class from. Um, is I he mean, doing that now? Yeah. Okay. I, didn't I mean, the, the videos, yeah. He has all videos, kinds of yeah. videos. Okay. Yeah. I like him too because he's um, there's no pretension in any of his work. He just builds it. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. And almost production style builds. Yeah. I mean, he just builds it quick. But he, he just start. Did he not just start? Uh, putting out videos because I, yeah, I guess I just about a year ago. Okay, yeah. gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. They're really good, mm-hmm. worth checking out. But that's that's my okay. answer. Wait, what do you got? Uh, so inspirations. I mean, yeah. If I'm being completely honest, it's Norm Abram, right? Because when YouTube was just starting to be a thing, all of his videos, somebody had put all of his videos on uh, YouTube, and I, yeah. I remember just binge watching them. And I remember on Saturdays when I was a little kid, probably like six or seven years old, seeing Norm Abrams still on PBS and I would watch it in the morning, but it was like, it was one of those things that's so discouraging because you're like this little kid and you're watching this craftsman doing all these really, at, at the time, what I thought to be very complex things and having all these tools in this wonderful, amazing wood shop. And it just, I just remember saying like, oh man, one day I'm going to have a garage or a shop just like that where I can just do anything in it, you know? And uh, then obviously, you know, you become eight, nine, 10 years old and your interests change. And then you get to your teenage years and I got out of college and I started watching them again when I got my first house. And then just like Sean, I mean, uh, Guy, when I first started watching YouTube, oh, you cut no, out. You're we're not trying. Blush. No, I'm not. But seriously, you were one of the first ones that was putting out like, kind of like what you said about Daryl Peart. It was an unpretentious way of doing things, and it was just a kind of a matter of fact. Like, hey, so this is the process I'm going to use, and I kind of thought about this, and I made. Oh, by the way, I made this jig. It's going to make it a little easier because I got to do ten of them. You know, it was it was just a matter of fact kind of thing. And it was put out there, not as, you know, hey, I'm, we're trying to promote this product, you know, because a lot of it is, so much of it is now sponsored builds and things like that. So so there's there's this underlying agenda, right, for a lot of the current videos that are out there. But at the time, there was no sponsored videos, right? Like people were putting out videos out of the goodness of their heart just to put out a video. Yeah. And so I can just remember those in the early years of, you know, you were huge in Inkra then, but Inkra wasn't sending you a penny at the time. You just have had Inkra for like the longest time. And so it was just a little bit more of a genuine perspective, I thought. In terms of somebody I would like to, and I, and Krenoff, yes, absolutely. That, that That's a great one, Sean. I really do like the uh, what you said there. Uh, I, I would like to kind of think of somebody that is, you know, I could actually take from now and somebody who I would love to take a class from would be William Ng in, uh, oh, yeah, in California. Yeah. 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 And he's got a lot of different classes and a lot of different topics. And I've seen some of his videos. I wish they, he put more videos out. Yeah. He's, he's a, he's a funny guy. 
Yeah, yeah. He's kind of has a that dry sense of humor. Yes, like. sarcastic, dry sense of humor. Yeah. Um, yeah. So William Ming, that's that's what I got. Well, you can go take classes from him. Go I can. It. Yeah, I you know got two kids. Uh, yeah, bring them with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, actually, I try to do something where like it's a woodworking vacation for myself one time a year. Um, that you know, my wife kind of does something for, she's a ballet instructor and a ballet dancer. And so she does that once a year where she just focuses, like, uh, goes to a retreat or does a workshop. William Ng is in Anaheim. So you can go there and go to Disney world. That's true. Yeah. And I've got, or Disneyland, excuse me. Yeah. And I have relatives there too. There you go. But yeah, I mean, it's one of these days. Uh, lately, I've been taking from uh, these classes from uh, Greg Pennington up in uh, um, Hendersonville, Tennessee. And they're a little bit more affordable because it's just a, a a drive, hour and a half drive down. And they're pretty inexpensive hotels around the area. So that's that's what I've been doing the last couple of years. But cool. anyway, next question. Does that answer everything, guy? I think so, right? I think so, yeah. Sean, you've got the next one, buddy. All right, this is from Tyler. Hey, guys, thanks for all the knowledge you guys pass on over this platform. It's been great being able to learn from others more well-versed in woodworking than myself, especially when it seems that serious hobbyists are few and far between where I'm at. My question is about shellac, which it seems you guys talk about every other, if not every episode. (laughs) Because I live in California, denatured alcohol cannot be purchased even through Amazon. I've heard of people using Everclear as a substitute for denatured alcohol, but as research shows, Everclear looks to be banned in California as well. What else can I use to dissolve the shellac flakes? Thanks again for the sick content, Tyler. Well, I went pretty deep on this one and, you know, it's, I learned quite a bit about uh, some alternatives and also learned quite a bit about, you know, what makes up the denatured alcohol, the Everclear, the higher the proof, this and that. So let me let me see if I can spill this out for you. Um, you know, from what I read, California Air Resource Board banned the sale of denatured alcohol a few years ago, like you're saying, Tyler. Um, and, you know, it's, quote unquote, illegal to cross state lines with banned products. So if you're hoping to hop over the border, you better be careful. Not that they're going to stop you, but that's just, you know, the law. I also read that the higher proof grain alcohol like Everclear is not available in California. So you're looking at something that's, um, I guess, what do they call it? Lower proof alcohol. But basically, you know, from what I was able to determine, here's the differences. The lower the proof um, on the alcohol, pretty much you're going to have a higher water content in there. Mm -hmm. With denatured alcohol, so we're not, that's, that's kind of the, the, the high grain alcohol. That's what that, what that means with the lower, the lower proof, you're going to have more water, which is more, you don't want that when you're, you don't want a higher percentage when you're mixing your flakes. Next, you're looking at something like a denatured alcohol, and that is going to be a two part. It's going to be ethanol and the methanol. The methanol is what they add to it to make it pretty much a poison. So you won't drink it. Mm. Um, so you've got pretty much a couple of different brands. You got Sunny, and then you got that, what is it, Clean Coat or Clean Strip or whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the thing about those, for the most part, is they've got anywhere, was it Clean Strip? Yeah, Clean yeah. Strip is 30 mm-hmm. to 60% ethanol to 30 to 60% methanol. Um, so it's kind of a crapshoot, unless you get the Clean Strip green labeled um, denatured alcohol it has a higher ethanol count at 80 to 100% versus the 3 to 7% methanol. So that's your second option is not for you in California, but I'm just trying to explain the differences between the <laughs> high proof, the denatured alcohol. And then your third option is to get a culinary solvent, which is 200 proof, uh, 190 and 200 proof pure ethanol. That's another thing that you can use to uh, thin your shellac flakes. And that's um, pure ethanol. Uh, straight from a distillery. Like culinary solvent sells 200 proof pure ethanol. It's not like denatured alcohol. It's straight from the distillery. It's not, uh, it doesn't have, it's just pure high proof alcohol. So you could use that to um, to thin your shellac flakes. Uh, but the problem is that's really expensive. Since it's a food grade solvent, uh, they do ship to uh, California. You will have to sign, be 21 and over and all that stuff 
a quart of 200 proof pure <laughs> ethanol food grade solvent is uh, 50, uh, $50 and a gallon oh is 136. Yep. So the, the next option is shellacfinishes.com. They sell a 200 proof denatured alcohol and it is right around uh, $26 a quart and a little over double that for a gallon. The thing about the shellac finishes 200 proof denatured alcohol is they say that they only have, I think they said seven to 10% water. So it's not super high. Um, I think it may be a little bit less than that, but the two places that I was able to find that would ship to California is the food grade uh, pure ethanol from culinarysolvent.com uh, and the shellac finishes. Uh, they're actually located in San Diego. They sell a 200 proof denatured alcohol and will ship to California inside of California. The shipping is around 18 to 20 bucks and it's $26 a quart or $50 or $56 for a gallon of that. Those are the two options I was able to find. But I, in all of this research, um, you know, basically you can get the 200 proof from culinary solvent. Um, I'm going to be switching over to the green labeled clean strip denatured alcohol because it's got a higher ethanol count. So this was a, an amazing deep dive for me. But those are your two options, shellacfinishes.com or culinary solvent if you want to spend a lot of money. But you're going to get pure ethanol. My bet would be shellac finishes for you because it's a whole lot cheaper and it's a lower um, water percent than you're going to get at like the clean strip and the other stuff that like sunny, whatever denatured alcohol anyway. So check those two sites out uh, and, and hopefully that helps. But man, it's difficult getting that stuff in California. So the clean strip green, it's called uh, clean strip green denatured alcohol. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So could you rem just say it one more time? What, what makes it, I guess, green or a lower methanol count? It has a higher ethanol count, lower okay. methanol, meaning the methanol making it pretty much poison so you won't drink it. So okay. the green is actually, you know, a pure, from what I've read, um, the, a pure higher ethanol count of 80 to 100 percent versus the three to seven percent uh, methanol count on the green version ver versus the non-green version, it could be anywhere from 30 to 60% ethanol uh -huh. to 30 to 60% methanol. And there's no way to determine that uh, and, that exact measurement when you're buying it. And so then the benefit of a higher ethanol count versus methanol count is a cleaner, clear finish. Is that correct? Well, I think you're the higher... From what I read, the the higher ethanol count, like in the Everclear, some people say it causes a cleaner, cleaner um, shellac finish. Some people say it doesn't make a difference, but obviously you don't want you want a higher ethanol count so you can have a pure product. It's going to you know dissolve the flakes better and and all that stuff. As far as as far as what I've read, I've, I've not done any experimenting on this. It's just from what I read, they're not able to see a difference. And going from a denatured alcohol to something like an Everclear, which is a higher proof of pure, you know, high proof alcohol, high proof grain alcohol like Everclear. Interesting. Which, okay. yeah, it, it's it's in it's a pretty deep subject. You know, I've just been grabbing any denatured alcohol off the shelf. It's worked fine for me. I've never purchased Everclear, but you know, the fact that Tyler's in California, his only two options that I saw. Or shellacfinishes.com, they sell 200 proof denatured, which is going to be, I think, probably better than your basic clean strip. It's going to be a higher proof. And then the food safe version, which is the culinary solvent, is 200 proof pure ethanol, no water, straight from a distillery, but you're going to pay out the wazoo for that. Right. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. It, Very interesting. Yeah, it was quite a uh, packed segment there so hopefully you guys are still awake <laughs> yeah I, I just don't know if I, I have nothing to add I, I just saw this question tonight and I'm lucky to be here in Indiana where I can buy denatured alcohol and Everclear yeah, yeah. yeah. and I've used both and the Everclear is obviously more expensive than the denatured alcohol I couldn't tell a difference okay well, that's me mm -hmm. yeah so, um, 
I wish I could give Tyler another option other than moving out of California. <laughs> but at least marijuana is legal there. So you got that going for you. There you I, go. I did read a lot of folks driving, and I'm not saying do it, it's illegal, but driving cross state lines, picking up some denatured alcohol, and then driving back. Again, it's illegal. I'm not saying do it. So that is uh why why did they ban it? Is it yeah, is it a VOC problem? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, the Air Resource Board banned it. Oh my gosh. And you know, one thing interesting about that culinary solvent, that food grade, uh, pure ethanol food grade is I I can't have that delivered in Kentucky. Kentucky, you cannot have alcohol delivered across state lines. I mean, I could go buy Everclear and I can go buy denatured alcohol, but you cannot ship that kind of stuff into Kentucky. Can you cross over state lines? Most of Kentucky is dry. No, really? we're we're not dry, but we just can't ship it here. Like I can, go, yeah. I got liquor stores all around. I mean, I can go get Everclear, one ninety proof, but just can't. Mm. Like if I wanted to buy wine or something online, cannot have it delivered in Kentucky. Yeah, oh, wow. All I was saying is that there a large portion of Kentucky is they're all dry counties. Yeah, there's quite a few of them. It's insane. Yeah. It's crazy. But yeah, try those two sites, Tyler shellacfinishes.com and culinarysolvent.com. I would probably stick with shellacfinishes.com for their stuff. It's going to work great and cheaper, way cheaper. Well, all right. So I've got the next question, and this one comes from Tom, our Patreon. So uh, he says, kind sirs, after my last couple of diatribes, I'll endeavor to keep the question brief. My wife is a lovely, patient woman, and for Valentine's Day, obviously we are a little bit late to the party here, I would love to make a pair of nightstands she's been hinting at for a while. Of course, I would have needed to start those two months ago to have any chance at making February 14th. So, well, I don't feel bad now for getting to his question a little bit late, but maybe for next year, with your help, I'll be making these out of some walnut scavenged from the power company clearing lines. I took two roughly 18-inch long and 24-inch diameter logs and hand-ripped them into rough parts. That's a lot of work. Uh, we've said that so many times cause he loves to use, uh, hand tools, uh, one inch panels, uh, two inch leg stock about 18 months ago with this in mind. Uh, they've been air drying since my conundrum is that these logs are from branches. The actual free still standing is about six feet in diameter. So for nightstands wanting a roughly 16 inch by 22 inch top, though my inclination is to use the nicest slabs, and he puts that in quotes, maybe get a little sapwood in there. My gut tells me that will look nice for a year and then end up like a like Sean's cherry table panels, especially because they're air dried. In your esteemed opinions, should I further rip the slabs into dimensional lumber and then glue up panels for construction? Aesthetically, I could probably use some traditional furniture. Uh, my wife says the house looks like the Keebler Elf Village already. We have a 14-foot-long, 4-inch-thick live-edge mantle, all maple trim with walnut plugs, and I use interesting offcuts to trim windows. That was brief for me. Thanks, Tom. Um, so uh, I don't think it matters too much of whether or not it's air-dried or kiln-dried. Again, it's 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 this... It's simply a case of what the moisture content of the wood is. And we've talked about that in the past, but we also talked about slabs before about uh, slabs, sort of uh, potato chipping and curling primarily because it's, well, it's flat cut, right? So you're not, you've got the center portion of that, which has a lot of the cathedrals and whatnot. Me personally, I would probably take some of that center out and then join them together I wouldn't necessarily make them into dimensional lumber like you said, but uh, you know, when I think of dimensional lumber, I think of like two by six, two by eight or whatnot, but uh, more so I would just take out the center portion of that slab that you're talking about so that you have more of the quarter sawn material and then join them together uh, so that uh, you, you eliminate that chance or you reduce, I shouldn't say eliminate, but reduce that chance of getting that potato chip effect. Now, Sean, I know you've done quite a bit of larger panels. I've seen some of the 
um, large pieces of beautiful lumber that you get. Have you ever encountered making a, a top about maybe the size of what Tom is talking about here and having that sort of potato chip afterwards or later on uh, in, in the life of that furniture piece? And did you go about splitting it in half and then rejoining? I have my coffee table, which is way bigger than 16 by 22, is one solid piece and it's one and it's a slab. Okay. I milled it using a router sled. It's still perfectly flat to this day and looks great. The okay. thing about that though is it acclimated in my shop for at least six to eight months. And, you know, the moisture content was was good. It was, you know, it wasn't wet, it was dry, it was kiln dried and set in my shop for eight months. It was stable before I worked with it. Uh, so that's, that's exactly what I would recommend that Tom do. And the thing about my cherry table panels, what happened with those is I glued them in the frame and the rails and styles. That's why they did that. So as long as you don't do that, you'll be okay. But my question about it is, is he's using the logs from branches from everything that I've heard is you don't want to do that because you're going to have some stability issues because of tension and whatnot in the lumber. I don't know if he's talking about making the top out of that or out of this six foot diameter tree. I mean, it just all depends on, on the slab. If it's dry, how long, you know, how long it's been acclimating. And then, you know, if he goes to mill it and leave it oversized and 16 by 22 is not super huge. Um, I mean, it's big. Don't get me wrong. You know, my coffee table is probably, I don't know, 24 by 36. It's huge. I would just have to know if, what what the condition of the slab is in. You know, is it dried? Is it acclimated? Completely dried and acclimated? Is it getting it kiln dried, or is it something that's just going to sit in his shop for a while? I mean, yeah, I would yeah. stabilize the wood first, and then I I would mill it oversized, and then see how it turns out. Yeah, you make a good point about the branches being uh, wind whipped and whatnot, causing some internal stresses there that might cause you problems further down the road. So, Guy, what what do you think about this, the whole branches thing, the whole a single piece? Obviously, being 22 inches wide, you know, for us, because we're using machine tools to, to joint material, you know, that's the other thing I would be concerned about is, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to hand flatten 22 inch wide piece. It's a, it's a tough question to answer because it's mostly, has, in my opinion, it has more to do with aesthetics than anything else. Hmm. You know, if you want to use some live edge stuff, do that. If you don't, cut the edges off. I guess I don't know what the real question is. I think he's worried about the yeah. air dried in it, in it. You know, does he does he need to cut it up into smaller pieces to re-glue them so it doesn't move as much? He's worried about it moving, I guess. Hmm. The way you're reading that, Sean, is just going to cut it up and then glue it back together? He says, should I further rip the slab in dimensional lumber than glue up the panels for construction? So I think he's saying, can I leave it one solid slab or do I need to rip it into smaller pieces, yeah. mill it, and then glue it back together? That's right, yeah. You can. <laughs> just depends on the lumber. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it just depends on how much work you want to do on it too. Yeah. So, I mean, with a decent bandsaw, you can get pretty good resawing capacity. So you could take those boards that may be you know, 12 quarter or 8 quarter, let's say, an inch and a half. Mm. Make the and, top that way. Yeah, make the top that way, or you know, just cut it, resaw it, mm. and and turn it into lumber, three quarter inch, if you want. Yeah. There's a lot of things you can do. It really depends on what you want the piece to look like. Yeah, I think. All right. Well, that goes through our first round of questions, and with that, I'd like to talk about our latest sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Shaper Tools, makers of Shaper Origin. Shaper Origin is an intuitive handheld CNC router that brings digital precision to the craft of woodworking. Working with Origin is simple. You steer Origin while it makes the necessary real-time adjustments to ensure clean, accurate results. With its easy-to-use touchscreen interface, you can quickly create designs on the spot or upload existing project plans. It's small enough that you can use Origin in the shop or take it with you on the job site. 
With Origin, traditional workflows become easier and more reliable. Tackle joinery, cabinetry, hardware installation, and more with speed and precision. Learn more about Shaper Origin at shapertools.com forward slash woodshop. As an added bonus, you can try it risk-free in your shop for 30 days. Upgrade your workshop today at shapertools.com forward slash woodshop. All right, so we're back around again, guys. Second question. So this next question comes from a friend of mine, Brian Schmidt. And Brian asks, I think this is a good question. What is the most challenging project you've ever completed? What made it challenging? How did you approach the problem solving required to overcome the challenge? Help us listeners get in your shoes and learn from your approach to tackling challenges in woodworking by providing a specific example from your experience. Thanks for all the insights you continue to share on the best working podcast in the universe. From the other side of the wall, Brian <laughs> Schmidt. What Brian is referring to, Brian works with me at Purposeful Design, and he's our chief financial officer. And out in the shop, we call all the people in the office the people that live on the other side of the wall <laughs> because they don't come in the shop, especially when it's 100 degrees in the shop like today. Oof. So now Brian comes in the shop quite often, actually. Anyways, so I think that the best way to do this is I'm going to go first, and then I'll hand it over to Sean, and then we can go, and we just pick something out and do it that way, kind of like a round-robin thing. Cool. Yep. So the most challenging, difficult project I've really ever tackled was the, the buffet, and I actually did a video on it. Mm. A lot of the stuff I had done on it before, but one thing that I had never done before, I mean, it has like a like bow front panels on it. So they're curved panels in front, which I've done before, but I've never put them in a frame. So the frames are bent also. Yeah. That the panels fit in, that the bent panels fit into. It was super challenging, and I couldn't find any information on it anywhere. I looked through, you know, old magazine articles, books, nothing. Yeah, on how to do it. So it's pretty straightforward, but still, it took a lot of head scratching. And the way I usually tackle something like that is, I I, I kind of break down the steps in my head. <clears throat> that I need to do to, to make things happen. So with that, it was a matter of, you know, building specific bending forms based on the thickness of the wood and the relationship of that to the bent panel itself, if that yep. makes sense, mm -hmm. because it's, it's different radiuses. Yep. So I had to lay it all out, something like that, my thought process and my, my tackling the problem, so to speak, is to draw it out, either with SketchUp or by hand. And I do, I use both. I probably do more by hand than I do with SketchUp. That's kind of how I did that. I mean, it was, it was tough. I had to build a lot of specialty jigs, especially to, you know, cut the joinery for the, for the rails and stuff. So you know, got a curved rail. Uh, it was it was a it was a fun project and it really made me think and I really enjoyed it. Sean, can I say two, and I'll be brief with both of them. Sure. Okay. The first one was the coffee table that I spoke about uh, just a minute ago, and the reason why it was one of the most complex projects that I had done and tackled is because it was the first bent lamination. Um, so I had to figure out how to make the form and then I tried using a bunch of clamps in order to clamp it down and, and found out that, you know, it's easier just use a bag <laughs> to yeah. do that. So, you know, learning about how to put it in, how to glue them all up, get them in a, in a form, put them in the bag. So that was a learning experience. And then once I got them out, I had to figure out how do I cut the ends at 90? Um, so I had to figure that out, which was, you know, easy for me to do once watch watching a 
guys' videos uh, on on the matter. Um, I learned quite a bit from that. And then the next thing was, well, now the legs ha- are tapered, so it's not just cutting them at a straight ninety degrees. Now I've got to cut at a ninety degrees, but I've also got to match the angle on the legs. And then I got to do joinery on that. Well, it's a curved apron, so I'm going to use the domino for that to help out a little bit. But how do I cut the joinery on a on a bent lamination apron when there's nothing to really reference? So I had to figure all that stuff out. Um, and then on the inside of the aprons, I had to figure out how to do joinery for the quote unquote riser blocks that the, the top sets on. Mm-hmm. So that was again, and making sure that both aprons had the joinery in the same location. So that's what made that project probably one of the most complex for me because I was, you know, getting out of my comfort zone and messing with curves and it's, it's, you got to come at it at a different angle. Uh, it's, it's, um, challenging, but very rewarding. It's so easy to, you know, your, your curved aprons may not match exactly coming out of the bag, uh, depending on how long and what type of glue, how long you leave it in there and, and mm-hmm. all of that Bounce stuff. Back. Yeah. So when you when you have a when you have a, a situation like that, I mean, what's your what's your thought process to to see, search out things that you know somebody else might have done something similar, or to start from the the ground up? So when it came time, okay, when it came time to when it came time to cutting the the aprons. For the most part, I knew making the aprons is going to be pretty straightforward. You know, you resaw the pieces, put the glue in between, make your bending form to the to the final size of what you want your aprons to be, and that was pretty easy. Cutting them to ninety degrees, I'm like, okay, how can I do this? And I was like, okay, I remember a video of guy. He had bit, bit lamination of this. How did he cut his to ninety degrees? Because I think it was a door panel or something like that from nightstands. I can't remember exactly mm-hmm. what it was. Yeah, and so I was like, hmm. Okay, let me see how he did it. And then I saw how you did it. And then I came up with, I think you may have done yours a little bit different because it was a bigger panel. And then, yeah. I, and then I realized like, well, I can just put the bending form up against the miter saw and then, you know, trim off the excess and make it flush with the end of the bent, bent lamination form, which is, you know, nice and square. So, you know, that was able to get me two aprons that were the exact same size with 90 degrees on the end. And that was part one. So the second part was, okay, how do I how do I line up my domino to route the mortises and the ends of these aprons so that they can connect to the feet? And so, you know, there's only two ways you can pretty much do it. You can either put it both side up or both side down and try to determine the best way to get accurate, repeatable cuts. And I believe I'd have to go back and look. I believe don't quote me on this, that I did it both side up and just referenced a flat surface and and put the domino down straight down like just flat on the surface and plunged mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. that's yeah. how i did it yep. um and then so that worked and so i was able to transfer the lines over to the leg and that's just a straight you know a basic uh taper so that was an easy boop boop plunge plunge and then on the uh on the inside of the aprons i just lined the two aprons up both side down drew my trans transfer my marks all the way across both aprons and so I'm like, all right, as long as I stay on these lines, I know they're going to be the same. So I just plunged using the domino off of those lines on all of them. And that got my joinery to, uh, to line up. So that's, that's how I approached that. And, and, it, you know, obviously it's much easier having a reference from a video from somebody else. It's going yeah. to be like, okay, I see how he was able to achieve those straight nineties on the edge. How can I take that and then kind of switch it over to, Mm-hmm. my narrow aprons because I couldn't, I couldn't cut my narrow aprons the same way you did like a door panel cause they're too narrow. So then that's what led me to uh, cutting them the way that I did. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. the other one real quick, and then I'll pass it to Hui is the freaking, it's not a piece of furniture. It is a wooden handheld game console. So uh-huh. I made this little freaking, that. <laughs> it looks like a like a nineteen six the nineteen eighties Nintendo Switch handheld yeah, device. Yeah. I remember that. That thing was so freaking. I had I drilled and made my own uh, X Y A B buttons, start select buttons, my own D pad. I did a hole for a speaker. I put a, another hole for a screen, and this was a handheld device. So I had to put make it thick enough to hold 
a Raspberry Pi Zero, all of the circuit boards, and I had to solder all that stuff and then put a power button on the back and then close it up. And it was very, very rewarding in a battery pack too, so that it could run for however long on a battery pack. Very difficult, very rewarding. Um, it was a difficult in a different type of way than that piece of furniture, but yeah. it was, those yeah. are the two things that I would, that I would uh, say were, were my most difficult. Yeah. Oui. Yeah. So my most challenging and it's kind of similar to how Sean had to deal with his challenges on the video game console was the conference table that I built um, about six, seven months ago. Uh, first off, it was large. It was large for my shop. It was four by 12. And um, I honestly thought that, hey, you know, I'm going to hire the shop that I bought the lumber from to flatten and joint the edges. I can just put this thing together. Well, that was wrong because they did a terrible job. Um, I mean, it was just not as first off, it was not completely flat. And then the edges were not perfectly 90. I don't know what joiner they were using, but it's really unfortunate because I paid for them to do that. And it was just really difficult to have to handle those boards in my shop on the A331 small joiner that I have. Thankfully, I had plenty of help and plenty of infeed and outfeed uh, that I was able to tackle that. But it, it was, it was, you know, these are very long boards. I'm not that big of a guy. Uh, and it was white Oak. So it, it was, it was difficult in physically to do, but the more, more difficult things and very similar to how Sean had to deal with his difficulties was, uh, dealing with all the electronics in this table. Uh, they wanted powered outlets that were along the perimeter. Oh, I had so like data ports and all that. Yes, the data ports. How did I route all of it? I had to, you know, let's see. Um, I had to separate all the electronics to two separate power cords because if I were to combine all of the outlets along with the wireless chargers, along with the other outlet for the polycon, the teleconferencing unit that sits in the center, well, it would have pulled over 15 amps. Hmm. most residential areas don't, you know, the outlets are like 15 amps, maybe 20 amps uh, for your kitchen outlet. So I had to have two separate outlets or else I, I worried about uh, tripping a breaker uh, if they were both plugged into the same outlet. So I had to be on two separate outlets. On top of that, they wanted all the wires concealed. So I had to figure out a way to conceal all the wires while still having space for all the outlets um, I had to make white oak boxes, these little tiny outlet boxes that they would fit under so that it would integrate well with the rest of the table. Uh, that was a pain. And then uh, they wanted their logos with uh, epoxied into the tabletop. And I have nothing against people that do that kind of epoxy inlay work. I'm not a huge fan of it. So while it was interesting, it wasn't something I was terribly didn't really have my heart into it. So th when you don't really have your heart into doing something, it just makes it more difficult to do. And I was just worried about screwing it up because here I had $1,500 worth of lumber on this tabletop of quarter sawn white Oak. And you know, I had to design, well, I didn't design the logos, but I, I, uh, coded the, um, all the tool paths and every, yeah, the G code for everything. And, and, you know, you have one, one, one chance at it. And so then I had to arrange it with the CNC shop. And then I had to go there because I don't have a big enough CNC to do it. Shaper Origin might have helped. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, plug for them. Uh, so I had to transport that uh, to all the way out in Woodville, which is 45 minutes away, which was where I, I found a big enough CNC machine to do it all at once, as opposed to cantilevering it off on some of the smaller CNC machines that were around here. So anyway, it was just it was just a lot of electronics that had to go into it, uh, doing a technique that I wasn't particularly fond of. And the way I tackled it was I just had to set the goal one goal at a time, the, set all the goals up and just do one at a time and just tackle that until finally I just went down the list and completed it. It was a six month project and 
I was really happy when it was over and out of my shop, but I was kind of proud of myself for doing things that I don't typically do. That's it for me. All right. Very good. I guess the uh, next question goes to Sean. Sean. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. This one is going to be a good one for all three of us here. Um, <clears throat> this is from John. Before I ask my question, I just wanted to thank you for your feedback on my last project. The advice you gave me about the box I was working on was perfect. Thank you. Hoping to get your input again. I have about $1,500 to spend on a bandsaw. Resawing is the priority. Bang for the buck is important, but in this case, I could be convinced to set aside another couple hundred or so since I think that the buy once, cry once approach could be worth it. If I remember correctly, Guy's a Powermatic, and I remember seeing Sean's YouTube video about the hammer. Not sure what Hui has. Regardless, I'm very interested in your thoughts, whether you like what you have, and whether there are other options that I should consider. Thanks again for a great podcast, for being so generous with your experience. I'm a big fan. Keep them coming. John. So, John, I have the Hammer, what is it, the N4400, I think is what it's called. Um, it's a fantastic bandsaw. Full disclosure, I did work with Felder uh, in exchange for the bandsaw. I made them four videos on my Offcuts channel uh, from unpacking it, setting it up, and using it and all that stuff. However, having said that, if I wasn't a believer in the tool, I wouldn't be praising it no matter what the price of the tool is. So, with that out of the way, um, the bandsaw that I have, the hammer is, I love it. It's its going to be the last bandsaw that I will ever own, um, unless I had a big shop and could afford a second one. But it has the resaw capacity, the power, the quality is amazing. Um, you know, it has the creature comforts. It has like a, a brake pedal on there to stop it. Um, it has awesome extension tables that I purchased myself that attach to the fence rail. Um, it's, it's just a, uh, it's a very versatile machine that's, you know, but rather expensive. Um, just knowing what your budget is and a few hundred dollars more, it would probably take, I'm guessing probably double that. Um, the only downside about the hammer that I noticed so far is the, it, the fence rides on a, a tube. So when you get your fence locked in or lined up to where you want and you tighten it down to lock it into place, it does shift about a 32nd of an inch. That's the only thing I'm not a huge fan of with the fence or with the bandsaws it, that it does shift a little bit. Um, and I noticed that because I think it was Eric from the Poplar shop. He, his, he had a bandsaw that was on a tubed uh, fence rail and asked me, he said, does yours do the same and I, and I looked and sure enough, yep, it shifts. So that's the only thing that I'm not a fan of as I guess that, that type of that style of fence is it does shift a little bit. But having said that, that's what I like about my hammer knowing what your, your budget is there. You're not going to go wrong buying, you know, a $2,000 Grizzly uh, bandsaw with the resaw capabilities. And I'm going to, and I think I'm going to pass it over to Hui who can talk more on this, but you know, that's kind of what I have is the hammer. Um, but with your budget, you can get a heck of a saw from Grizzly for resaw purposes, and and yeah. Guy can speak on this as well. Um, but that's that's my hammer in a nutshell. Hui, can you talk about what you got? And yeah, I've got things? the G zero, the Grizzly G zero five one three X two, and I think the X two pertains to the fact that it's cast iron trunnions and cast iron balance uh, wheels, and then also a cast iron fence not the not the aluminum fence that attaches to it but there's a cast iron sub fence i guess you would call it that uh that uh that this machine has i love it i bought it gosh when i bought it i think it was like 12 or 1300 dollars so it was like 1500 dollars shipped it's gone up man it is yeah. 1850 now um and it's 230 dollars for shipping i think it was two, uh, 199 at one point for shipping so great and unfortunately that bandsaw has gone, gone up considerably but still that puts it in right over two grand two thousand which for what you're getting from that bandsaw um is wonderful this is really a great buy and it is a beast of a machine i think it's got a two horsepower motor on it yeah two horsepower motor which is plenty 12 inch resaw capacity 
plenty for me. Um, and 16 and a quarter inch cutting width. So that's uh, between the throat and the blade, 16 and a quarter inches. Yeah, I love it. it it's a great machine. I would definitely get it again because it served me well. I would be very, very hard pressed, even though it would be nice to have a Powermatic like uh, like guys or a hammer like Sean's, it, I there would be no reason for me to get rid of it and upgrade it other than purely wanting the name recognition of Powermatic or Hammer. I'm very happy with this machine. And I think you get a, a lot of bang for your buck and you get a lot of bang for your buck for a lot of Grizzly machines. I know a lot of people um, have had bad experiences with Grizzly, but I think that's more of a uh, leakage of quality control than anything because I've had several Grizzly machines now and I've been quite fond of them. Guy, I know you used to have the Grizzly, but now you have a Powermatic. You've got the big boy. Um, well, I think it's the it's, 19th. It's actually inch, right? the small one. Not the smallest. It's a 15-inch. Oh, really? Automatic. Yeah. It's not the 18-inch. I had the Grizzly 513 also. Mm -hmm. And I tell you what, that was a freaking great bandsaw. Oh, yeah. There's just I, 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 everything you said about it is true. It had a good resaw capacity. at 17-inch throat on it and... I mean, it was, it did such a good job at resawing. I really liked that saw. Yeah. I had absolutely no issues with it whatsoever. I, I can't recommend that saw enough because yeah. it is inexpensive. I don't know what the going price on it right now is. Did anybody check? Did you yeah, check? Yeah, it's we just $1850. Yeah, it's gone pricey. up. Yeah. It's pricey. When, it was a lot cheaper when you and I bought it. Yeah. When, it came at a time at work for us to buy a, a bandsaw. I I wanted a Grizzly, and that's what we got. We got the big twenty four inch. Okay, Grizzly. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a if, and that price range that you're looking at, uh, John. I I highly recommend the Grizzly. Also, yeah. mm -hmm. um, I don't know what the price is on the hammer, Sean. Um, it's over three. Yeah, it's, that's like the Powermatic. That I have now is well over three thousand. Especially since you know when I got it, with the prices of everything going up, yeah, it's probably well over three. Yeah, yeah. I I, I can only recommend John what I've used. Mm -hmm. There are some saws I wouldn't recommend that I have used. One of them is the uh, the Laguna saws, <laughs> so mainly low. mainly because they're too short. There, it's a it's a nice enough saw. I've used a, we have one at work. But the, the the bed on it is like six inches off the ground, it feels like. <laughs> it's just too short. Um, well, you're pretty tall, too. I'm, guy, I'm, six, I'm six one. I'm not no, that's I'm pretty not tall. really tall. I'm, I'm, a whole, I'm a whole five, yeah. six. Sometimes I, sometimes I wear heels and I get a little bit higher. Oh, okay. But, um, <laughs> yeah, the, it, it, like I said, it's a nice enough saw. I absolutely hated the ceramic guides on it. So... We actually took those off, and I put Carter roller bearings on it. Yeah, and it's much better now. Hmm. I had a jet that was like one of the fourteen inch, the fourteen inch type saws. Hmm. Those are not real good for resawing. You can put the riser block on them; they tend to bow a little bit, and they just they just don't, do not resaw well. I've never got a good resaw out of the thing. So, yeah. Yeah, my bandsaw experience, I came from a Porter Cable tiny 14-inch yeah. to the hammer, so I, I don't have any references in between. I went from, like a, I think it was a $400 bandsaw to what I have now. And if, now I will be honest, if what I was working with Felder didn't go mm -hmm. through, I 100% yeah. would have either gone with the Jet or the Grizzly for the bandsaw and yeah. most likely would have gone grizzly just because of, you know, guy and Hui's uh, experience with it. I mean, it, it's a fantastic bandsaw for the price and it's really hard to beat. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Hui, what do you got for yeah. us in your last one? So I've got the last question here. This is from Tom Stanley. It's a different Tom. So we're not uh, capitalizing on Tom's generosity to the Patreon campaign. 
Um, it's a different Tom. Gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time every two weeks to produce this outstanding podcast, which I have thoroughly enjoyed and have in integrated many of your ideas and tips into building my shop and developing skills as a woodworker. Well, thank you, Tom. Thank you for the kind words. I am in need of an outpeat table and also a stable dead flat assembly surface. I think that Hui's Moat, the multifunctional outfit assembly table, is a terrific solution, but I have a few questions. I know that the torsion box portion is based on Ron Polk's popular workbench, which includes the dog holes that I really want to utilize for clamps, etc., and the interior storage space. Also, the removable hardboard surface with its reference dowels is a great idea that requires access inside the box. However, I have watched torsion box build videos by Guy, Steve Johnson, Mark Spagnolo, and others, and their designs all differ in that they are, th they are thinner and have a much denser array of honeycomb grid elements, which suggests to me a greater chance of remaining dead flat. But of course, they do not allow for meaningful use of dog holes or interior access. So I am looking for the best compromise design one that allows the dog hole array and all of the clamping options, but also has the best longevity for staying flat. Is there a best height, best grid layout configuration that I can aim for? I'm thinking that between you three engineers, well, we're not all engineers, uh, the perfect solution will be forthcoming. But uh, thank you, and please keep up the very much appreciated podcast. Best, Tom Stanley. So yes, he, he characterized, uh, Tom characterized it very well. Uh, my quote unquote torsion box, it's not technically a torsion box, is based off of Ron Polk's uh, workbench to give you some access underneath and also to access the, the dog holes. I think that my torsion box, quote unquote torsion box, is flat enough for what I do. Is it dead flat? Mm, probably not. It's probably has like a couple thou here and there where it's not flat. You know, if I were to take a straight edge to it and, and, and take some feeler gauges, probably have uh, some gaps here and there. Uh, but it's not something that I'm overly concerned about or worried about. Whenever I've made tables with legs and, and had to worry about getting it level, ultimately, while it matters to get it you know, relatively level, most of the surfaces that my tables go on are not level. And so to a certain extent, talking about tables, chairs, and uh, and the such, it matters, but not as much as maybe you think. Now, where it really matters, I think, is when you're making certain cabinet boxes and whatnot and making having those things flat and other, other surfaces that need to be a little bit more precise. And for that, I have my workbench. So it, I feel like it's a big enough surface to... Uh, and flat enough surface. It's much flatter, I would say, than my uh, outfit assembly table. Uh, but when I need something really dead flat, I use my workbench. And when I need something just to assemble and uh, as a work surface and as a bigger workbench, then I'm using my outfit assembly table. Now, and I completely agree that, you know, guys and Steve Johnson and Mark Spagnuolo's designs for the tighter honeycomb structure is absolutely going to be much more flat. And so if that's what you're looking for, and if that's what you need, I, I would say lean more towards that and maybe make a separate smaller section with the dog holes that have access to them because you don't need, I would say that most people don't need a dog hole table as large as mine, which I think is about three and a half feet by six feet. Um, what, what guy, since, you know, you were mentioned in this, in this, uh, as one of the, uh, torsion box designs, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the main reason I wanted a dead flat assembly table wasn't necessarily for cabinet boxes or casework or any of that. It was doors. Mm. I always had a hard, uh, or I shouldn't say hard problem. I always had a problem getting doors perfectly flat mm. and I most of the doors I do especially in the the fine furniture, you know quote unquote fine furniture or air quotes fine furniture are recessed doors so mm -hmm. when you have when you're trying to put a recessed door in a cabinet and you want you know you're going for that 16th inch reveal all the way around 
and it's got to be dead flat like the front of the cabinet is. That's where a good assembly table really shines. It doesn't introduce twists into anything, and it's you, you can get like dead flat panels on it. That's the yeah. main reason I built. That's the main reason I wanted a torsion box. So take that for what it's worth. For an outfeed table, I have a an actual Festool MFT top. MFT top built yeah. into a custom frame that I use that just hooks onto my table saw, and that's it. And that works like really well. The only the only problem with having an assembly table, an outfeed table, and assembly table as a dual purpose yeah. type thing. The big advantage to it, obviously, is it saves space in your shop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Disadvantage is, is you'll be building on that thing. You'll know, have clamps all over it. And you'll have yeah. project parts all over it. And it's like, oh, my God, I need to cut a board. And you got to <laughs> move it all off because it's in the way of the board you're ripping. Yep. And I've come that's, across that. That's the only problem. But, I, again, that's... Is that a really big problem? No. Is it inconvenient? Yeah. But is it a big deal? No. <laughs> Myself the, with the with the with the assembly table. Yeah. Having something flat like that, I, I myself I didn't I didn't need holes in it. I didn't yeah. want holes in it. If I need to clamp something to it, I'll clamp it around the edge, yeah. around the outside. And then you have that smaller portion of the uh, smaller outfeed table that is that does have the dog holes in it. So yeah, you can use that if you need yeah, it. Exactly. So, yeah. how about you, Sean? I know you've been changing some things up in your shop. What what's your strategy going on going forward? So I currently have one of those. I think it's a five foot by five foot um, torsion box. Mm-hmm. Uh, assembly table and it's outfit and assembly all in one. Um, I've been thinking a lot about that. It's one of those things like you build it. When I built it, it, I looked and it looked flat and I'm not looked or cared since because the work that I'm producing is turning out. Okay. I mean, I have built furniture on way shadier surfaces than the, than the outfeed table that I have now. And they came out perfectly fine. So yeah. I think at some point, like you said, flat enough is going to be okay. Um, yeah. you, you have your workbench, which is a known perfectly flat surface. You got a table saw top that is a known perfectly flat surface. Mm-hmm. If you are needing a solution with dog holes so that you can use it as a multi-purpose table, I, I would just get, make it a, you know, a flat, maybe a double thickness, flat MDF top or something like that. Um, and build a base that's going to support it and go with a, you know, the dog holes and, and go that style of table. I would like to have that style table just so that I can make a smaller um, outfeed slash assembly table because it's way too big. And I only use one side of it because, you know, it's just up against the wall almost. Um, yeah. I mean, I could get away with something half the size. And I think maybe the perfect solution is to have two independent tables like Guy has. One with, you know, with a flatter surface and the one with the dog holes exactly like Guy has that and have them make them both mobile. Um, and put them side by side. So that way you've got the best of both worlds. If you need to assemble something, use the flat one. If, if, if your other one's not, you know, not flat, which I'm sure it would be flat enough. I wouldn't, I, I guess ultimately I say all that to say, I, I wouldn't get too caught up on dead flat surfaces because what you build, like what we has is perfectly capable of giving you adequately built furniture. That's going to be flat great. enough. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. If, yeah. That's what I think of the matter. That's what I like to think of my furniture. Flat enough. Yeah, flat <laughs> enough. And if it rocks, they teach woodworkers. If you have a table that rocks, they teach you how to fix it. So yeah. fix it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that wraps up this show, guys. Uh, please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions, please send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or you can DM us through Instagram at Woodshop Life. We would also like to thank everyone who has left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and the feedback. 
And you can reach me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media accounts are on my website. Where can you be found, Guy? Uh, you can just Google Guy's Woodshop or go to any of the, the, the social media platforms and search Guy's Woodshop and I'll, you'll find me. You on TikTok yet, Guy? Yeah, yeah. You doing dances no, on TikTok? <laughs> but I am on Rumble, Truth, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. All right. And Sean, where can you be found? You can find me at Simple Cove on social media, Twitter and Instagram and wherever else. And if you want to see uh, my portfolio, go to simplecove.com forward slash Sean, S-E-A-N, to see my builds. And if you want to see Sean twerk, you can get him on TikTok, right? No. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) Guys, thanks for listening. We will see you in a couple weeks. Adios.